Well, here it is inside EMS. We are excited to be here with you. And, you know, we try to bring you the latest and greatest information today. We've got another great show, but it's it's the stuff that we talk about before we start recording that you guys have to hear. Kelly, we're going to have to come up with some type of gag reel or something. Yeah, we will. That, uh, because we get a little bit crazy before we hit the record button. No crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I don't know if the world is ready to hear uncensored Kelly Grayson. Censored Kelly Grayson is already in C-17 anyway. Uh, I, but uh, yeah, I think a, a inside EMS gag reel would, would be a nice Christmas present for people. Here are bloopers <laughs> and our, uh, our occasional bleeps. Well, I got to tell you, man, since we've been gone to video, uh, since we've gone to video, and if you haven't checked out our video, uh, e- inside EMS or EMS one video on YouTube, and, uh, we've been a little bit more tame because we don't have the opportunity to edit like we used to back in the old days, but, uh, I can't podcast naked anymore. That's right. I mean, it, it was really something that was uh, quite challenging for me and my therapist said, I am getting better, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Kelly, a couple things in the news this week that we're going to talk about. Certainly, LeBron James's son, uh, Bronny, uh, had a cardiac arrest while playing basketball. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, kids in sports now are having some challenges. So we want to talk a little bit about uh, public access to fibrillation. And then uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit. And we're going to talk about uh, a couple of EMTs were assaulted. And yeah. uh, it's it's given me a lot of pause and a lot of concern where I have actually been thinking about since Kelly Grayson will be retiring from his, uh, you know, uh, direct care of being on the truck. I've actually missed Full it. Time, yeah. And I've wondered where I could be, uh, where I could work on the truck uh, myself and just get back into the job that I've always loved. But then you see all this assault and stuff that's going on. Um I'd be a little bit concerned for safety and uh, how I'm going to take care of myself, but uh, that may sound a little bit weak, but we'll talk about it both. But first, Kelly, go ahead and set up the first um, story and we'll go from there. Yeah. July 25th, uh, LeBron LeBron James' son. Wait, no, come on. Cut. uh, Cut. Everybody, quiet on the set. And Kelly Grayson and action. Yeah, on July the 25th, LeBron James's son, Bronny, uh, a freshman at USC, suffered a cardiac arrest during practice. Uh, uh, apparently, undiagnosed heart problems, went into cardiac arrest, was successfully revived, resuscitated, uh, and uh, shipped via ambulance to the hospital, and he's now out of the ICU and in stable condition. So, uh, apparently, it looks like it was an, a fairly uneventful, if, if such a thing can be uh, can be said of a cardiac arrest, a fairly uneventful cardiac arrest and a successful resuscitation. But it just goes to show uh, that fat, out of shape, 55-year-old paramedics don't just go into cardiac arrests. Uh, no, they have pulmonary emboli. Uh, but uh, And 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 uh, older people, uh, children and athletes and young adults can go into cardiac arrests uh, and I would wager that the only thing that saved LeBron, uh, Bronny James's life is uh, that second link in the uh, AHA train, chain of survival, which is prompt early access to fibrillation. Um, and it's a shame that public access to fibrillation in, in so many places is still a pipe dream or poorly implemented uh, such that, that it's not really public access. Um, and, 
you know, we, we have, we have some, some pretty recent events by healthy athletes, uh, that of cardiac arrest being successfully resuscitated, Bronny, Damar Hamlin, in the case, uh, in his case, it was Camosio Cordis, but that's just another, uh, example of, of athletes needing, uh, CPR and defibrillation, professional prompt CPR and defibrillation. And, and, uh, I was struck by, by how rare that still is. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is in my career, I, I've uh, ran two calls, one on a high school athlete uh, playing football that went into cardiac arrest and a college athlete playing basketball that went into cardiac arrest. And one of the things that I found interesting was uh, I did ask the questions of if they had defibrillation, because at the time we had a pad program uh, where we were and I wanted to be able to hook them up with the um, you know, necessary people that maybe could get him a defibrillator if needed. And it was interesting because the high school coach told me, well, who expects a 16 year old playing football to go into cardiac arrest? And what was interesting, Kelly, is that the college trainer told me the same thing. I said, do you need access to a public defibrillator? And this is, they were about a year apart. And, um, yeah. Then, you know, the trainer said, who expects, well, we have AEDs in here in the college, but we don't have them here in the gym. I said, well, what about yeah. the people who are sitting in the stands that could need that, uh, you know, that AED? And he made that, you know, he did say that that was a good point. But when we think about this from the chain of survival, you know, if somebody's going to go down, they have trainers, they have coaches, they have players, you know, that are there that could render aid, but access to the defibrillators? Who, who's going to think that they're going to need it? Uh, too few people think that they're going to need it. And and that's the sad thing. Um, public access defibrillation means just that, public access defibrillation. It's not a special thing for special people to use. The whole point of prompt uh, public access defibrillation is that it can be readily accessed by anyone. Go to the airport. Anybody can pull one of those AEDs off the wall. Uh you know, it, it's just, <clears throat> I don't know if it's a control thing uh, that people like to control the, the device and, or, or, you know, they, they don't trust other people uh, uh, to use one appropriately. The whole point of having an AED is that it is, it is uh, available and, and easily used by lay people with little or no training. Um, <clears throat> yet you, you find people that uh, are uh, programs that, that negate those benefits every single time. I remember uh, a few years back, Nancy was uh, had a contract with the uh, our state bureau of EMS to update and inventory millions of dollars worth of AEDs that were distributed via uh, grant programs around the state, and they gave them to fire departments with limited funds and police departments and so on and so forth in schools, mainly schools. Um, and it was shocking to me how many of Louisiana schools just let. Five ten thousand dollars worth of AEDs gathered dust on a storeroom shelf and never deployed them. Never once put them on a wall. Came up with a policy. Uh, even powered the things up and put batteries in them and 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 put them in the nurse's office. Uh, and the ones that did had the AEDs locked up in the nurse's office, and the only one who could access them was the school's nurse who is not present during sporting events and, and only present certain days of the week and that sort of thing. 
and and it was ridiculous. We we had one agency or one school that had the AED out and available, but they also had uh, a set of instructions printed on how to use the AED that were exactly contrary to how the AED's own internal instructions, uh, which was pretty obvious that they had never even turned on their AED in training mode and and trained with the thing. Uh, and, and it was kind of kind of sad, you know, to know that uh, despite all the money we have, we had spent uh, on public access to fibrillation, that it was still not implemented properly. Um, you know, you, you find better at, at an airport from a layperson uh, where they have CPR training kiosks, mm-hmm. you know, uh, than, than you do uh, from medical professionals in, in schools. Uh, it's a pretty sad state of affairs. Kelly, do you think, and I may be a little bit uh, removed from this, but do you think we we think about the the public access defibrillator programs? I remember when I was uh, at a large high performance EMS system, we started to have AED registration um, monitored by the dispatch center. So when somebody called, they said, "Hey, go two doors down to blah blah blah. They've got an AED and you know pad programs." And do you think that? I think EMS did a really great job of, of um, you know, spearheading that. But do we have we taken a step backwards and that we've kind of just assumed that everybody got the education? and Or do you think that it's just the complacency of people that uh, know it's there, but they're just not using them? I think it's I think it's complacency. And I think there there have been some, you know, I think there's a bit of a disconnect between the the. Uh, um, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of how a program should be implemented uh, and the planning of it. Uh, uh, there's there's uh, great in theory, poor in execution. I remember back in the day when, when we had to be uh, EMS instructors in Louisiana, also had to take a separate AED instructor class, and we were certified AED instructors. And every AED program in the state of Louisiana had to have a medical director uh, and who was was uh, tasked with reviewing the data from every single AED deployment, um, and and the staff had to recertify with the AED every two years, just like they did with CPR. And you know, you can imagine how how onerous that being, how how popular AEDs were not. Um, and when when American Heart Association jumped on the uh, the public access to fibrillation bandwagon, that's what really changed things. And they were successful in, you know, kind of removing those strictures of of uh, strict medical director review and, and having to have a medical director for every AED program. Um, and, and they kind of, you know, brought public access to fibrillation to the masses, made it truly public access. But yeah, I think now that, that people think that you can just hang it on the wall and not you know, promulgate uh, the fact that there is one uh, or or at least familiarize people with it. And they're just, it's not in their minds. Uh, and the people think that, uh, that deploying uh, AEDs think that their task is done uh, when they stick it on the wall or put it in a box somewhere and, and uh, send out a memo and that's it. Uh, 
unfortunately or fortunately for Bronny James and for DeMar Hamlin and, and, and other people, uh, in, uh, you know, well-organized athletic programs, uh, they had trainers and they had people that are, uh, are practice and drill on those sorts of things. Uh, and they were able to save someone's life, but you know, this is not, and, and I was looking back over the, uh, I was I was doing a Google search on uh, basketball players who had suffered cardiac arrest because I'm I'm trying to remember there was Lynn Bias in 1986 uh, who died on uh, died on the court uh, for the Maryland Maryland Terrapins. Uh, he'd just been drafted by the uh, 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 Boston Celtics and he died from uh, arrhythmia. Uh, due to cocaine overdose. But there was another basketball player whose name escapes my mind uh, that died uh, of cardiac arrest in a in a workout because most likely because rapid defibrillation was not available. And uh, apparently the another USC basketball player had a cardiac arrest a year ago. Um, and this uh, Vince, uh, I'm going to butcher poor Vince's name, uh, Vince Iwachuk, uh, he was Chukwu. Um, he was a seven foot, uh, uh, basketball player for USC, took a water break and collapsed. Uh, and, uh, they luckily they, sir, uh, they resuscitated him successfully. So, um, you know, uh, so they had a practice run for Bronny James a year earlier and they, they apparently learned their lessons from that. Um, just, it happens, you know, and, and, and it's a well-recognized medical phenomena that yeah. just because you're a healthy athlete does not mean you are, are immune to arrhythmia. Uh, uh, athletic cardiomyopathy is a thing. Uh, these guys, it's not really hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but they build up their left ventricle due to the, uh, the, the intense cardiovascular conditioning and exercise they do. And sometimes that results in life-threatening arrhythmias. Yeah. And uh, it's not something you can you can you know, you can screen for it a little bit, but you never sometimes you never know you you have the propensity for a life threatening arrhythmia until you've had one. What is it? You know, with the statistics for sudden out of hospital cardiac arrest, we lose, what, three hundred fifty thousand people a year uh, and out of hospital cardiac arrest or they they uh, they suffer it every year. And the vast majority never do. They had heart disease until they have a cardiac arrest. So. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. Let's go ahead and switch gears. I don't know what's go what you're doing, man, but I always see half your face. What is that all about, man? You need to put yourself. I'm, I'm all in. I'm I'm in profile, man. You need to put yourself in the uh, back in the frame so people who are watching us can see you. And uh, but I don't know what the hell's going on over there. And uh, I was I was chilling out. Uh, oh, starting my, my, my poor my poor webcam. My poor webcam has uh, has tilted down. You are trying like to, you're, you're getting the New York attitude already. That's what's happening. Like like many things in my life at this age, my webcam has started to sag. All right. We're not going to go anywhere with that. <laughs> Let's go ahead and move along. But, uh, you know, I do want to switch gears, you know, as we talk about, uh, you know, things that are happening in the news that we have to pay attention to. Certainly, I think public access to fibrillation. And if you have a good program there, let us know about it. Let us know that those programs are still going on and give us some characteristics about your program. We'll certainly share it. Um, but we did have a, a EMT in New York at a Mount Sinai hospital that was stabbed by a patient as they were pulling into the emergency room. The patient became agitated, took out a knife, 
uh, stabbed the EMT, uh, Julia Taylor at Fatum. Uh, she underwent several surgeries. She was stabbed in the chest, stabbed in the leg, stabbed in the arm. And then when we think about, uh, you know, we go to uh, the 24th of July, we do have another assault where a paramedic was assaulted during transport. And uh, she was, uh, they were punched in the eye and, um, and even the ED staff was threatened. And, you know, you and I have disagreed on this about, uh, I think that this has gone up. The, the amount of assault on EMS providers has gone up. You think it's because of the 24-hour news cycle that has said uh, that we're just seeing more of this. I, I think it's you. both. I, I don't disagree with you that it that it has gone up, but I also think that we're we're seeing more of it because of the twenty four hour news cycle. But here's the thing that I think is interesting: you and I have been in EMS, and we know how you know we know how news spreads in EMS. I don't remember hearing about this stuff when no. you know back in the old days. But it, it's still the point of this is getting to be a very very slippery slope for our staff. And we've got to be able to um, figure out a ways that we can keep them safe. I mean, I had challenges in my career as a paramedic where people would get aggressive. I was able to put myself in a position that I could defend myself if I needed to do that. Kelly Grayson, I don't suspect many people are threatening you with your, um, uh, you know, you're your very tall male. You're a very, uh, you know, you're kind of a, a big guy, you know, and, yeah. you know. People, you know, aren't really going to put their hands up. I'm sure you've had it as everyone else has. But when we think about our female professionals, when we think about people that, uh, you know, other folks may be having some mental illness challenges that think that they can take on the world, it's it's becoming more and more troublesome and worrisome that we are going to start to lose providers because people are going to just... Um, take advantage of them. And I go back to New York city where the, um, uh, you know, the, uh, EMT, uh, Lieutenant was walking on the street and some guy just grabbed her and threw her down and stabbed her, you know, countless times and killed her. And yeah. You're near Arroyo. Yeah. And even though that wasn't, uh, on the, on the job, that was just a random street assault. Um, it still keeps the height of our, uh, safety. Uh, and as an EMS leader, if I was in charge of those EMS systems, that has to be the first and foremost uh, concern of mine to make sure that the workforce goes home at the end of their shift. And I I'm losing faith in that we are keeping our providers. And I think I'm babbling, man. I'm just going to go ahead and give it to you. But I I'm losing faith in the ability to keep our providers safe. Yeah, I you know, I don't think this is strict. This is not strictly a, an EMS thing either. You know, it, it is assaults and uh, I, I don't have statistics, so I'm not going to quote them. And I'm going to say I'm not going to say blanket that that society has gotten more violent. Uh, but certainly our discourse, uh, our, our verbal discourse between uh, between human beings in this country, at least, has gotten uh, far less civil, and we are nastier to each other than we have been uh, in in my memory. Um, and I think that uh, that um, the marginalized in society and those who are mentally ill uh, have uh, you starting to see increased amounts of of them lashing 
lashing out in violence. Uh, I think it goes back to President Reagan uh, pretty much dismantling and dis- defunding the the mental health system in the United States. Uh, I don't think that uh, uh, Ronald Reagan knew what the consequences of what he was doing back then, but it resulted in you know uh, a great many uh, people who should be institutionalized because of their violent tendencies and their their danger to society are walking around free on the streets and the people who may not be a danger to to society um, because uh, if they got proper health uh, fall through the uh, the cracks in a, in a healthcare system that has plenty of cracks for the underinsured and uninsured and 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 the the lower rungs of our socioeconomic ladder you know, we just, we got a lot of people out there that are not getting the help they need and they decompensate and they spiral into, uh, uh, spiral into ever worsening mental illness and they lash out and hurt people. Uh, and we are working harder in EMS and trying to pick those, uh, to, to pick up the pieces of that broken healthcare system. And we get stabbed and beat up, uh, as well. Uh, yeah, not a, it's, uh, I think we hear more about it, but yeah, I agree with you that it is happening more often. There are some steps though, I think that, that, you know, agency leaders can take. My question would be, and I'm not by any stretch of the imagination laying the, the blame at the feet of the, the EMTs here who were attacked, but how does one t- get stabbed in your own ambulance by a person who is emotionally disturbed as you were taking to the hospital for same? How does that happen? How did they get in your ambulance with a weapon? How how were they able to get there? If you yeah, were, I don't know. were dealing with if yeah, you were dealing with an emotionally disturbed patient, how how'd they get their limbs free? You know, but I think that that's I think that that's semantics, man. I mean, we could sit here and we could say those things, but we've been in we've been in uh, on calls that have been very very benign and that have escalated verbally and have es- escalated behaviorally. And I didn't, I didn't put my hands on every single patient to pat them down to see if they were carrying a weapon. And for us to sit here and say, how does that happen? Um, I don't know that we can be armchair quarterbacks to say, because how many times have I'm, you I'm not been, trying to be. But how many times have you been on a call where things have kind of ratcheted up and did you ever think, oh, my God, they may have a weapon and they could attack me? I know I didn't have that mindset. And I think that we're trying to do our job as to the best of our ability. We're trying to um, uh, deliver the highest quality of patient care. We're not thinking about that these people are there to hurt us because we keep saying, I'm here to help you, right? So to flip the coin and say, how does it happen? Uh, how many times, Kelly, have you been on a call to where um, they've unbuckled themselves and they've stood up in the back of the ambulance and they've jumped out the back doors and, um, you know, so, you know, well, and, and case in point, um, my, my former employer recognized these, these issues. They've had assaults on patients. Uh, I mean, on, on crew by, by, uh, uh, emotionally disturbed patients, uh, and they implemented a, a blanket policy. And I'm not really a fan of blanket policies, but I can understand their motivation. And in this case, and I, uh, and I cannot question the results 
because it has kept our, our people safer. Um, any emotionally disturbed patients that we have, any, any psychiatric complaint or patient with significantly altered mental status, every single one of them gets limb restraints and a, uh, a strap around the chest under the arms that buckles in the back that they cannot reach. Uh, the reason for that is is multiple, uh, uh, multifold. Uh, some years back, we had a patient jump out of a moving ambulance on Interstate 10 in New Orleans and got smeared by oncoming traffic. Uh, we uh, so we implemented the the psychiatric sports safety belt uh, to prevent that from happening. At least one strap to hold the uh, the patient against a stretcher that the patient cannot undo themselves. Uh, and and with the assaults, we've, we've gone to uh, pre-mounted limb restraints on the, on the ambulance. And, you know, we, I don't always like using them, but like anything, it's a policy. You have to follow it. Uh, and uh, I think by and large, it has been a good policy uh, because we don't have those, those instances where someone uh, is able to get their hands free and, and and attack a crew member. Uh, it, it resulted in fewer crew members getting attacked. Um, I uh, It tests your customer service skills for sure, because I like to think that I can verbally de-escalate and calm down a patient. And I would, and I'm, I've always been fond of saying, look, I want to have a, a conversation with you and treat you like a human being. And I don't want to tie you down like an animal. Um, and, and I would really like, uh, you know, this to be a pleasant ride or, uh, or not an unpleasant ride for both of us. So once you get on the stretcher and I'm successful in doing that, but with the restraint policy, it was like, look, you know, um, I'm gonna have to tie you down. Sorry. It's policy. Right. But if that person were tied down, he wouldn't be stabbing someone. And, and like I said, at the beginning, I, I'm not placing the blame at the feet of of the the person who was attacked what i am saying is that like many of these events there's usually a cascade of of events that that occur that led up to this and it was not one single thing so can you halt that cascade somehow and 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 keep that attack from occurring i think there are things that agency leaders need to to think about and and see where they can intervene with a policy or some tr specific training maybe you know, in, in the self-defense community, there are a number of classes out there uh, on recognizing predatory behavior uh, or pre-attack indicators, uh, the physical cues that people are about to to attack you. And even psychiatric patients give off those clues, uh, um, these 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 uh, physical grooming behaviors that, that tell that uh, an attack is is imminent. Uh I wonder how many EMS people are actually trained in those things and recognize those those yes. ticks and, and unconscious movements for what they are. Well, our good friend Jason Brooks, let's not forget, we've had him on the show to talk about DT3 yes. EMS and uh, the EVE program that he is very, um, that he has been successful in teaching to many EMS agencies. We are both advocates of that program. And uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can check out the website, get in touch with Jason. But uh, Kelly, it's time to put the wraps on another show. So yeah. do your thing and let's move on to next week's preparation. Yeah. And I, I think uh, we end the show with your uh, with your admonition that you're fond of. Keep your heads on a swivel. Uh, always be alert. Always have your eye on your patient. Uh, I know it's hard sometimes when you're 
when you're getting slammed by calls and you're trying to get your, your run paperwork taken care of uh, before you get dispatched to the next one. But uh, uh, your safety is important. And sometimes you need to, uh, you need to be paying attention to your patient uh, even when you think it's a milk run, but Hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. What is your agency doing to protect you from attacks by patients? Are there specific policies and procedures and, and, uh, protocols and equipment that you have in place, we'd like to hear about them at the show at ems1.com. And for don't forget to rate us on iTunes and check out our, our video channel on YouTube so you can see what I look like. Remember that the, the camera adds 150 pounds. <laughs> for myself and co-host Chris Cibolero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.